Well, good morning. I sound very loudly this morning in my own uh, mic, so if, uh, if I get too loud for you, just put your, your hands over your ears. Or if I offend, offend you in any way, you just go ahead and do that as well. Second uh, Samuel 7 is our passage this morning, Second Samuel 7. This is uh, an episode in the unfolding of God's covenant with his people. We have seen the covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, uh, the covenant uh, with Moses. And here is the last covenant before the new covenant comes, before the new covenant that Christ brings. And it begins in verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince Over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all of this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, At this point, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads because this is going to be part of our prayer. David's prayer before the Lord is going to be part of our prayer this morning. So if you bow your heads. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. 
Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now... O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servants and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless this house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Father in heaven, we who look back through the cross see these words, and they are our prayer. They are no less true today than they were the day that David uttered them. You are our God. You have built a house and you have redeemed for yourself a people. And we know you will fulfill your promises. Help our unbelief. And may you cause in our heart the rejoicing that David experiences here in your word from comprehending the depth of the truth that you shared with him about your promises. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. An old story goes that there was a family that went to a piano concert. And uh, it was a couple and their son, and they, they took him in, into this concert. And while they entered this concert, they encountered some friends of theirs. And they became distracted. And during that time, the boy wandered away. Well, before the concert started, they found their seats, and they were looking around in the concert hall, and they were asking the question, where was their child? Where he, had he gone? And suddenly they hear laughter, and they look up. And there, at the piano, was sitting their son, tapping out with one finger the notes to Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. They were mortified. As the laughter grew louder, their embarrassment grew deeper. And the, the wife was elbowing her husband, go get him off the stage. And of course, the father's like, I don't want to go up there and be the center of attention and embarrassment either. And so here they are, the audience roaring in laughter. And then from the wings appears the pianist. And he walks over with a very stern look on his face. And he comes to the young boy and the parents are horrified. And they figure what's going to happen next is that child is going to be severely rebuked. Meanwhile, the child notices not one thing, but keeps hammering out, twinkle, twinkle, little star, until a hand appears around the side of him and adds to the melody. And the child looks over, and the pianist says, 
don't stop. Keep playing. And his hand wraps around him on the other side and fills in the melody. So that by the end of the song, a beautiful version of Twinkle Twinkle, Little Star has blessed a concert hall full of people. And at the end, he asks the child to come up with him and they take a bow. And at that point, the parents aren't feeling horror. They're feeling incredible gratitude for what this man did not have to do for their son and embellishing his imperfect version of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. That kind of reminds me of what's going on here with the story of David. Why? Well, David's heart's in the right place. He's a conquering king at rest from his enemies, and he wants to display his gratitude to God. And so he figures, why should he dwell in a palace of cedar while God is in a tent? And so he sets about to make it known to Nathan, I'm going to build God a house. And it seems like the right thing to do. But even though his desire is motivated by gratitude, even though his heart's in the right place, David's plans are a simple tune pecked out on a piano or the artwork of a child scribbled out and offered to a parent that is displayed with mutual affection on a refrigerator. God's response is beautiful. Like the master musician, he places his arms around David and he turns David's simple kingship and his plan for a temple into a masterpiece that not even David was expecting. And David's response to that is not, go away, I'm trying to do something for you here. David's response is deep gratitude when he understands, when he comprehends that his plan was small and God's plan was mighty. When he wraps his arms around David, he doesn't just do that for David, he does that for us. Because this promise to David is also for us, and we directly benefit from it. And the more we see it, the more we understand just what's happening here in this passage and what promises are here for us that God will do exceedingly and abundantly more in Christ than we can imagine, our hearts should be moved to gratitude. This covenant with David, again, is the last biblical covenant before the new covenant comes. Like the previous covenants with Adam and Noah and Moses, it illustrates something of what Jesus' ministry would be. There is shadow and substance. And here we see the shadow. The Lord is acknowledging that David wants to do what he wants to do is, it has merit to it. But it's a mere shadow of what the Lord really, truly desires to accomplish. And like all of our efforts without the empowering spirit living within us, it's only shadows. It's only tunes pecked out with a single finger. But when God's spirit comes into the mix, when, it, when he fills us, it becomes so much more. These words apply first to David and Solomon, but they are the shadows of Christ and his people. David understood and was moved to gratitude. So when we look at this passage, we should ask the question, what should move us to profound gratitude? 
Well, it should go without saying that the first thing that should move us to profound gratitude is the fact that the eternal king who governs his everlasting kingdom is foretold from this passage. In verse 16, he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Solomon was a decent king, but extremely imperfect. It is clear from Solomon's own prayer in 1 Kings 8, 27, that he recognizes in his wisdom that he himself is only a shadow of what is to come. So by the time that you're finished reading First and Second Kings, and if you've ever done the Bible in a year and read through First and Second Kings, you feel like you need to take a shower at the end. It's so vile, and the kings are so petty, and the violence is so great. In fact, by the end of the Old Testament, what you should feel profoundly is that if man could actually fix his situation before God, he should have done it by now. But the Old Testament is a record of the fact that man is unable of saving himself. But it's also a record of God showing us the shadows of what is to come, his perfect redemption plan, his perfect plan of rescue. Only God can solve the problem, and only God can be the eternal king. We, we, we aren't, if we aren't moved to profound gratitude merely by knowing we have an eternal king, there's more here. We're moved to profound gratitude knowing what sort of things this eternal king has done for us. And here in this passage, we see three things in the shadows of the Old Testament of what Christ would do for us in the New Testament. First, Jesus, our king, establishes the place of God's indwelling. Second, Jesus, our king, establishes a people to be indwelt. And third, Jesus, our king, establishes rest from our enemies. If I had really been thinking about this, I could have said he would have established a place for us to dwell in peace, to keep that whole dwell thing going. But I'm not so creative in the moment. First thing we should move, that should move us to profound gratitude is pictured here in the shadows, is the reality that Jesus, our king, establishes the place of God's indwelling. Look at verses 12 through 13. The Lord says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Is he talking about Solomon or Jesus? The answer is yes. He is. He's talking about Solomon and Jesus. Because in the Bible, when you see various prophecies, you have a a, a prophetic foreshortening, a near-far prophetic prediction, so that when something that is near to them comes true, they can be certain that the thing that is far off will come true as well. It's like this. Imagine that you're on the salt flats in, in the western United States, and you're looking out as far as you can see, and you see this dot on the horizon, and it's moving towards you. And the more it moves towards you, the more you realize that is a man. But the more that he gets closer and closer, you realize, well, that's not just one man. There's two men there. One's right after him. And then you keep watching, and then a third man appears. That is prophetic prediction. The closer that we get to the New Testament, the more refined these Old Testament prophecies become, and the clearer we see the distinction between what was promised to Solomon and what was promised to Christ. And there's overlap between the two of those things. You can see it in in Isaiah when he promises uh, 
a child to be born. Yes, that was the child that would be born to Isaiah, but it also predicts the child that would come, the child of promise, the, God, the one that would be God with us, Emmanuel. And so this applies to both Jesus and to Solomon. Even Solomon, when he dedicates the temple in 1 Kings 8, 27, realizes that what he has just done, and as magnificent as the temple is, it is not enough. And that he is not enough. He says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And in the New Testament, Stephen in Acts 7, 47 through 50 says this, but it was Solomon who built the house for him. But the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did, my hand make all, did my, not my hand make all things? And we see God's reply to David's request through Nathan, something truly remarkable here. In verse 6, the Lord says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought my people, uh, the people of Israel out of Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. God's pointing out two things here. First is that our God is the sort of king who comes down to the level of his people. One author puts it this way. While the people of the covenant lived in a vagabond life, traveling from one temporary dwelling to the other, the God of the covenant displayed his readiness to identify with his people by traveling with them. Does this not speak of the incarnation of Jesus Christ? The word that became flesh and dwelled among us, literally the word there is tabernacled. And through his incarnation, he came down. He did not have to. The God of the universe did not have to come down and redeem a people, but he chose to. It was his great desire. And he humiliated himself, and he became like one of us. And he experienced the pains of the human life, and he experienced the temptations of the human life, and yet he resisted all of them so that he might bring us to the Father. So this one who would come came down and he lived among us. And he's with us and he remains with us. And that speaks a word for all of us who are going through whatever trial to know that God is not distant. The God that we serve, the king who is our king is not a far off king in a castle, aloof and distant. He is with you at all times. That is the promise here. It's even prefigured in the Old Testament as God moved about from place to place in a tent, choosing to identify with his people. And he identifies with us as well. But God's response doesn't just point us to Jesus' incarnation. It points us to the Holy Spirit's indwelling. Paul, a man who is standing there listening to Stephen, holding the coats so he didn't become ceremonially unrighteous by the blood splatter that came from the throwing of the stones hitting Stephen, heard the words Stephen had to preach. And I've got to imagine that that sermon did something in Paul. And after his conversion, later on, he's able to write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We are his temple. We are his tabernacle. 
That's God's new covenant promise. When he says that you will no longer have to teach someone to know the Lord, they will know him from least to greatest. It's because that means that his spirit is indwelling in us. We no longer have to seek after his presence. His presence abides within us. Encouraging, convicting, correcting, comforting, emboldening. And many times we take that for granted. We take for granted that the old covenant people did not experience that to the full. They had to go to a place. They had to go to a temple. And then someone had to go to the holy holies for them. But Christ, when he died, ripped the curtain so that you and I have complete access to the king of the universe. And that access is not in some remote place. That access is within you. Because by his spirit, he has prepared you to be his temple. You, knowing everything that you've done, knowing every place that you've been, knowing everything, every rebellious thought of your heart, he cleansed your heart to make it a place for his dwelling. And that should move us to profound gratitude. But second, Jesus, our king, establishes a people to be indwelt. Now, for those of you who like puns, take heart. God liked them first. There's a lot of wordplay in puns in the Bible, and this passage is no exception. But you will not find a joke like, need an ark? I know a guy in the Bible, because God's puns aren't that bad. When God puns in the Bible, he doesn't pun for humor's sake. He puns to make a point. And here he's punning. Watch what happens. David says, I want to build a house for God. And the Lord Lord says in verse 11, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. See what he did there? He says, I want to make a house for God. And he says to you, he says to, to, to David, I will make you a house. Now he's speaking when he says house of dynasty. But he's making a play on words. Look, I honor the fact you want to make a house for me, but guess what's going to happen here? I'm going to make a house of you. He's made a house of us in the sense that we are his temple and he indwells us, but he makes a house of David, of his dynasty. And it doesn't just speak of David's dynasty. In his prayer, he acknowledges it speaks of the people Israel, a redeemed people. It speaks of us who would come and be ruled by that king. There's something about David's house that reminds us of the house, the people that God will establish. And the echoes are seen here in verse 8. Look what the Lord says to David in verse 8. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, which, is that an indictment on on David's leadership of the sheep, that he's following them and them instead of them following him? I don't know. I don't know. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And that's a beautiful statement about what God has done in the life of David, that we've seen this man be taken from obscurity to the height of notoriety in following God. But it speaks something of you and me, doesn't it? Because this is an echo of the, of the God that we know. He's the God that took Abraham from nothing 
Just one man amongst a city full of people. And he made him into a great nation. And he took fishermen of all people. Fishermen from Galilee of all places. I would make a modern reference, but I'm sure I would offend somebody from somewhere if I made the reference of what Galilee was like. (laughs) But he took people of all places from Galilee. Insert the place that you would never, never, never go. That was kind of filled with people who were just kind of sketchy. He took people from Galilee and made them into apostles in his church. And he took you and he took me from whatever broken life that we had before him. And he made us his. He brought us into his house. He made us his people. When's the last time you thought about that? To my shame, I don't think about it enough. But it should empower and motivate me, and encourage me, and move me to profound gratitude. He basically took us from the pastures and made us into kings. Because there's more here. He says in verse 14, God speaks of David's progeny saying, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Pictured as both Solomon and Jesus, but as the, as the, as the passage goes on here, it applies only to Solomon and those coming after He says, when he commits iniquity, which Jesus never did, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And though this is pointed towards David's heir, it is equally true that when he brings us into his house, his dynasty, the dynasty of Jesus Christ, he makes us sons and daughters of the king. And we know this because he disciplines us. How many of us have experienced the discipline of God and immediately knee-jerk reaction thought, I must not be part of his people? But why? Because he says, here I will discipline my people. It's like that conversation that all of us have had with our children or we had with our parents in which they discipline us and they say, you don't love me. I love you and therefore I discipline you. I don't understand. Of course you can't understand. You're a child. But let me tell you this. If you and your friend sneak out of the house and you go somewhere dangerous and then you come back and I found out, I'm going to discipline you to do what? Keep me from doing it again. Yes, keep you from danger. Am I going to discipline your friend? No. Why? He's not your kid exactly. My discipline of you shows you that you are my beloved son. And it shows that I refuse to let you go. And that is what, what God is saying here. He's going to bring an eternal king who will, who will discipline his people for the sake of his love for them because they are sons. And that is what we are. Just as there is a turning point in our maturity where we are able to look back and be thankful to our parents for the discipline of us, there's a point in our walk with Christ where we do the same where we realize and we experience profound gratitude because we know it means he loves us so much that he refuses to let us go. But the third reason we see here that we should be moved to profound gratitude is that Jesus, our King, establishes rest 
from our enemies. In verse 1, the context of this passage is that David is at rest from his enemies, his surrounding enemies. In verse 9, the Lord reminds David how in the past he has been with David and cut off all of his, all of his enemies from before him. Now that promise extends to all of Israel. Look at verse 10. He tells David that he will appoint a place for his people and make them to dwell undisturbed. And he says in verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies. And for years, Israel appropriated that verse, this promise geopolitically. And rightly, they should. That's part of it. It's an aspect of it. But what they fail to see time and again is that the greatest enemy was not flesh and blood. It was a world system, for sure. But it was fueled by our own sin nature and governed by Satan himself. And the fruit of that kingdom is death. But the fruit of Christ's kingdom is life. And that's why Christ's bodily resurrection is a big deal. It's an indicator to all of us. When we gather on on Resurrection Sunday and we sing, Christ the Lord is risen today, hallelujah, we're declaring that what Christ did is not a theory or a philosophy or a concept. What he did in time and space is a reality. And his resurrection is a death blow to Satan and his kingdom. And from the moment he dealt that death blow, this sinful world started dying away. And the one that is to come began to spring into life. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God and the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. C.S. Lewis illustrated it as D Day and VE Day. What Christ did on the cross was gain the foothold. The victory was already won. It was inevitable. Once they, the, the allies had gained lodging in Europe, it was inevitable that Europe was going to fall. But the ultimate victory did not come yet. It came at the surrender of the Germans, at the surrender of the Japanese in World War II. And as we remember our veterans and we remember those who fought for us and we remember the wars they fought and the footholds, the, the, the ground that they took. Let us not forget the ground that Christ took. People ask, if Christ has overcome on the cross and he's overcome death, why do I still experience death? Because the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But our king has promised a future resurrection in which death will ultimately die. And then death will be extinguished forever. 
And so that we would believe that to be true, he came back from the dead and showed us what we will be. As John says, we don't know yet what we'll be, but we know that we will be like him in his resurrection. What began as a simple desire to build God a house made of cedar, God came in and said, nice plan, but I think it needs to be embellished a little bit. And what was originally meant for Israel, what was originally meant to be just a temple, God, like that master, created a symphony. And that dinky little twinkle, twinkle little star became the church indwelled by God's Spirit who was promised by their king of triumph. We who live on this side of heaven need to look back on those who lived on that side of the cross and be reminded that just as he prevailed on the cross, he will prevail for all eternity for his promises are sure. And every moment between now and then, he's writing a symphony of unbelievable glory. And so when David says, who am I, Lord, that you would do this for me, that should be the prayer of every single one of us at the end of the day. If you don't know him, I'd love to talk to you about him. I'd love for you to appropriate those words, who am I, Lord? But if you know him, you are all claiming the words this morning, who am I, Lord, that you would do this for me? And so as we close, we pray in gratitude and we sing of God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, who are we? What is man that you are mindful of and the son of man that you care for him? You placed him a little lower than the angels, but you crowned him with glory and honor. Why? Why? When we see who we are, would you do that for us? It's because you love us, and it's because you love us, and it's because you love us, and it's for no other reason than that. Nothing that we've done nothing that we could do, nothing that we could think, nothing that we could be, because apart from all of the things that you do for us, we are nothing. And we seek ourselves, but Father, you don't leave us to that. You make us a kingdom, a kingdom of priests, and dwelt by your Spirit for your glory. May you shake our hearts, fill our hearts, and bring gratitude to our lips because of your mighty mighty plan and promise. We rest in it in Jesus' name.